Washington lawmakers try to strike a compromise to avert a potentially devastating federal default as soon as next week. Defaulting on the debt does not reduce our spending. It just means we stiff our creditors. It's Monday, May 22nd. This is All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up, a look at some of the consequences if the U.S. defaults on its debt. Also this hour, two lawsuits filed by families of Uvalde school shooting victims will test whether federal liability protections shield gun makers from some of their marketing techniques. And the deal to conserve more water from the Colorado River. Forecast says clear and cool tonight, sunny and mild for much of this week. It's 4.01. First, we'll take a look at this hour's news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is striking an optimistic tone that he and President Biden can still reach a deal to lift the nation's debt limit. NPR's Claudia Grisales reports that both sides still have plenty of work to do to try to reach an agreement by June deadline. President Biden and Speaker McCarthy have about 10 days to reach an agreement in time for the earliest projection the country could breach the debt limit. Both sides are still far apart on proposed Republican spending cuts and other concessions. But McCarthy told reporters there's still time to make a deal. We can get a deal tonight, we get a deal tomorrow, but you've got to get something done this week to be able to pass it and move it to the Senate. Biden and McCarthy are meeting at 5.30 p.m. Eastern for their first conversation after talks saw a dramatic pause over the weekend. Each side accused the other of taking steps backwards in negotiations, but then resumed plans to meet again. Claudia Grisales, NPR News, the Capitol. Another humanitarian ceasefire is now in effect in Sudan. Previous truces have quickly collapsed, but the latest would be enforced by a monitoring mechanism that involves Sudan's army, its rival Rapid Support Forces, or RSF, and mediators of the agreement, the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. Under the deal, the new ceasefire lasts seven days to enable the distribution of food, water, medicines, and other essentials. For the last five or so weeks, millions of people in the capital Khartoum have been trapped in their homes because of the fighting and looting. Russia is continuing to celebrate what the Kremlin insists is a Russian military victory in the eastern Ukrainian city of Bakhmut. This following months of intense fighting, yet as NPR's Charles Maines tells us from Moscow, questions now shift to Russia's ability to occupy the city. According to Yevgeny Prigozhin, the head of the Russian mercenary force, the Wagner Group, his fighters and his fighters alone were responsible for the capture of Bakhmut. Now Prigozhin says his men will depart the city beginning Thursday, effectively handing over occupation of Bakhmut to Russian army regulars Prigozhin has repeatedly criticized as ineffectual. In a post to social media, Prigozhin mocked the defense ministry, calling on generals to come help occupy the city should the army lack enough men. Meanwhile, Ukraine insisted its forces had made significant gains around the outskirts of Bakhmut and suggested their mission would shift to pinning down Russian reinforcements inside the city limits. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. The European Union's privacy regulator has fined Meta $1.3 billion. Here's NPR's Rob Schmitz. The penalty announced by Ireland's Data Protection Commission is potentially one of the biggest in the five years since the EU enacted a data privacy law known as the General Data Protection Regulation. Regulators said Meta failed to comply with a 2020 decision by the EU's highest court, which stated data sent to the U.S. was not sufficiently protected from American intelligence agencies. It's NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon. I'm Deborah Becker. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says voters should decide whether City Councilor Ricardo Arroyo should keep his seat. That's amid calls for Arroyo to step down after he was named in the investigations that led to the resignation of Massachusetts' top federal law enforcement official. WBUR's Rob Lane reports. Arroyo is facing criticism after his name appeared in federal ethics reports that prompted last week's resignation of U.S. Attorney Rachel Rollins. Texts uncovered by investigators seem to show Rollins serving as a de facto campaign advisor for Arroyo during his unsuccessful bid for the Suffolk County DA's job last year. Mayor Wu tells WBUR's Radio Boston it should be up to voters to evaluate whether Arroyo should serve another term as city councilor. Where behavior might be unethical but not illegal, that bond between people being elected and able to choose their representatives is very, very important. Boston voters will cast ballots in city council races this November. For 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rob Lane. Massachusetts is a step closer to allowing social consumption of marijuana at cannabis cafes and bars. The State Cannabis Control Commission voted today to move forward with crafting new regulations to govern those types of businesses. Commissioner Bruce Stebbins says a pilot program developed four years ago was unnecessarily restrictive for small businesses, and the commission will be accepting public input on regulations for cannabis cafes in the coming months. Governor Maura Healey's out of state until tomorrow afternoon. She's attending the Democratic Governors Association's Spring Policy Conference in Michigan. Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll will be acting governor while Healey is away. In sports, Red Sox play the Angels in Anaheim. And our weather forecast, clear and cool tonight. Temperatures only in the 40s. Sunshine tomorrow. Highs in the 60s for Wednesday. Mostly sunny with temperatures in the 70s. We do have a chance of showers later in the day on on Wednesday and possibly Wednesday night. Mostly sunny skies Thursday and Friday, though, with temperatures both days in the 60s. WBUR supporters include Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Peggy Whitson has spent well over a year of her life in space. At the age of 63, she is back at it. We'll hear in a few minutes about her trip underway now to the International Space Station. First, to a deal that impacts drinking water, electricity, and food sources for tens of millions of Americans. Today, the White House announced a major conservation deal on the Colorado River. Reservoirs are critically low after decades of overuse and drought brought on by climate change. And states that share the river have been negotiating for months, trying to come up with their own agreement so the federal government doesn't mandate water cuts for them. NPR's Kirk Ziegler is covering the deal. Hey, Kirk. Hello, Ari. Uh, After months, there appears to be a breakthrough. What's in the deal? Exactly. So this involves three states in the lower basin, Arizona, Nevada, and California. They're voluntarily agreeing to a plan to use three million acre feet less of water over the next three years. So what's three million acre feet? Uh, For context, that's about a third of the traditional flow of the entire Colorado River. It's a lot, but not as much as they'll eventually need to cut. But, you know, at least for now, it's going to hopefully keep the river's reservoirs from falling below a level that would endanger the water and hydropower supply 
you know, for major cities here in the West, not to mention huge pieces of highly productive farmland that, of course, are critical to the food we eat. I mean, Ari, this is an extraordinary time. I mean, Lake Mead is dangerously close to what's known as Deadpool. That's the level where no water would flow below the Hoover Dam to these states. Sounds like this deal is only possible because the White House is offering more than a billion dollars to make it happen, though? <laughs> Right, yeah, this is a key point. Uh, in order to get these cuts, the Biden administration is doing things like paying farmers to fallow their fields. Uh, the government is also compensating irrigation districts, Southwest Indian tribes to voluntarily keep some of their legally entitled water in Lake Mead, uh, you know, in order to keep the nation's largest reservoir from literally going dry. Uh, this money is largely from the recent infrastructure and inflation reduction laws, so it's just temporary. Um, and there's just, you know, there's another big thing that's making this deal possible, Ari. The West, we had an unusually snowy winter, and almost all of our water here comes from snow-fed reservoirs. I talked to Catherine Sorensen about this deal today. She's the former manager of Phoenix Water and is now at Arizona State University's Kyle Center for Water Policy. The good snowpack kind of bought us the luxury of bringing forward a deal that wasn't quite as much as the federal government was hoping for, but it does buy us time. The question is how much time? As significant as this deal is, is it just a temporary fix? Well, it is significant. You know, we can't discount that. It's some of the largest reductions of water use in modern times, but it's only going to run through 2026. It's temporary. And that roughly $1.2 billion in federal relief is uh, federal relief is one time only. Um, these conservation commitments are voluntary, but Catherine Sorensen there at ASU says this is key, actually, because it will likely avert what many had feared across the river basin, that the federal government was going to come in as soon as this summer and start enforcing mandatory cuts across the basin unilaterally, you know, not even accounting for users who actually have done a lot to conserve water already. And that's important because the minute the federal government does that, someone's going to sue. So is the fight going to be even bigger a few years from now in 2026? I'd say it's highly likely. I mean, even if you didn't factor in climate change and the 23-year mega drought here in the West, this river is already way overpromised to so many users of its water. I mean, this has been a problem even when the river law was written 100 years ago, back when they didn't have 40 million people living here in some of the biggest cities in the nation, like Los Angeles and Phoenix. But I have to say, as I've been reporting, and it's taken me across the Southwest in the last few months, I've really noticed a growing kind of acceptance that the current rules just aren't working, the current law of the river. And everyone knows that saving this river is going to take a lot more. A lot bigger water restrictions could be coming for farms and cities across the Southwest. But now that the deal has been reached, what are the immediate next steps? Well, this deal is going to, for now, immediately halt an emergency environmental plan that the government had been about to implement in the coming days. And presumably, this is going to give the states more time to continue these even longer-term negotiations. You know, it's interesting, California had for months been a holdout, refusing to agree to a conservation plan that the six other states in the basin had agreed to. So they appear to, at least for now, already be at the table. NPR's Kirk Sigler, thanks a lot. You're welcome. The debt ceiling debate can feel a little bit like Groundhog Day. Same drama, different year. Of course, it is possible this time is different. Congress may actually fail to reach a deal in time. So what exactly happens to the economy and to the lives of everyday Americans if the U.S. defaults on its debt? NPR's Stacey Vanek-Smith takes a look. Sometimes it feels a little like the U.S. is the country that cried debt ceiling. 
But this year, there seems to be real worry the country might slam into that spending limit and actually run out of money, not be able to pay the bills. The dreaded default. And that sounds bad. But is it really so bad? What exactly happens if the U.S. defaults anyway? I put this question to Daryl Duffy, professor of finance at Stanford's Business School. So it would be a disaster, and the reputation of the government for meeting its debt obligations would, would be in tatters. And Duffy says that reputation is worth money. A lot of money, actually. The U.S.'s reputation for always paying its debts has allowed it to borrow trillions of dollars at very low rates. $31 trillion, to be exact. If we default, the interest rate on that debt would go up because the U.S. would be seen as a risky borrower, just like your credit card interest rate would go up if you started missing payments. A higher interest rate would mean that huge U.S. debt would immediately start getting hugely huger, really fast. But some debt ceiling diehards say, okay, so we default, our debt gets bigger, our reputation gets a black eye. Maybe that would be the kick in the duff Congress needs to actually get spending under control. Negotiate like adults. And that's a totally reasonable view. Justin Wolfers teaches economics and public policy at the University of Michigan. Just like your family has to live within a budget, you might say you want Congress to live within a budget. But defaulting on the debt does not reduce our spending. It just means we stiff our creditors. So we default, that will teach them. That confuses who gets hurt. Wolfer says if the U.S. defaults and there's no more money to spend, the government suddenly wouldn't have cash to run basic operations like roads and schools. Right away, government workers might stop getting paid. Businesses that have contracts with the government might not get paid. And that could mean a lot of layoffs. Social security checks could stop going out. Also, Wolfer says it would shock financial markets, might even cause a panic. After all, banks have loaned the U.S. government billions of dollars. They hold a lot of the debt that suddenly no one is sure will be paid. People could start to worry whether banks are on solid ground. And that's when the financial system freezes up. That means there's no more borrowing. Businesses stop investing. The markets go absolutely haywire. And so that's the sense in which all of this could very quickly looks in many respects like the financial crisis of 2008. Well, the only thing that's different is it's a self-inflicted shock. In short, the U.S. economic engine could start to seize up, putting different parts of our economy at risk all at once, says Stanford's Daryl Duffy. Operations would start to break down. A recession could follow. It's the most critical part of U.S. national economic security that the government can fund itself. Now, Duffy points out countries default on their debt all the time, and they do keep going. But the U.S. is not just any country. It's the biggest, wealthiest economy on the planet. Countries all over the world own billions of dollars worth of U.S. debt. An economic shock in the U.S. would spread all over the world. In recent decades, some larger economies have defaulted, including Greece, Iceland, Argentina. They did all bounce back to some extent. But economist Justin Wolfer says in each of those cases, it was a long, painful journey. Each of those countries went through recessions that are arguably close to depressions. So I'd say let's not join that group. That's my um, insightful economic advice. And it's estimated Congress might have less than a week to follow that advice. Stacey Vanek-Smith, NPR News. Sometimes it's hard for trailblazers to stay retired. Ask Tom Brady or Michael Jordan or Peggy Whitson. Hey, gang. This is... Dragon Freedom up here 
with a new crew on board at orbit. At the age of 63, Whitson is commander of the AX2 mission for the private company Axiom Space. It launched yesterday afternoon using a SpaceX rocket and capsule. It's now docked at the International Space Station. I'm really excited about returning to space, but even more excited about welcoming three new astronauts to space. Those three others include an American businessman and two Saudi astronauts. It's their first time in space. For Peggy Whitson, it's her fourth trip. She's done 10 spacewalks. She is known as Space Ninja. In 2017, she broke the American record for the most cumulative days in space, a total of 665. She spoke to NPR's Weekend Edition that year after landing back on this planet. Well, gravity always sucks. Yeah, Earth is a big change after being in orbit for the better part of a year. Part of the adaptation when you get back, though, is all those little muscles, you know, in your knees and your ankles that help you with balance. They haven't had to work for, in my case, nine and a half months. And so we do lots of specific reconditioning exercises that try and make them remember how to work. Whitson was the first female commander of the ISS. When she returned in 2017, she said it was unlikely she would go back, but she admitted she would miss it. Anyone that's ever gone to space is always wanting to go back. (laughs) You get addicted to it. She did retire from NASA in 2018, but one more opportunity came in from the private sector. Among the research projects that this Axiom space crew expects to work on is one involving cancer cells. We are looking at how cancer cells are forming and and working in space, and this is going to help the scientists learn even more about how that development occurs because in zero gravity, they form more like they do in your body. And so it's a it's a really good model for them to use. In a press conference before launch, Whitson said she'd be traveling with the necklace she wore on her wedding day, as she did on three other space flights. She and her crew are expected to stay at the ISS for eight days and return to Earth at the end of the month. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Thanks for choosing 90.9 WBUR. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up in about 15 minutes, two lawsuits filed by families of Uvalde school shooting victims will test whether federal liability protections shield gun makers for using deceptive marketing techniques. The time is 18 minutes past four. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bassberry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bassberry.com. And the Harvard Art Museums, open to everyone. Explore three floors of art spanning the centuries, free Sundays, and museums at night events. HarvardArtMuseums.org. On Wall Street, the Dow dropped 140 points today as talks in Washington continue over the debt ceiling. The Nasdaq was down almost 63 points. In local business news, Massachusetts tax collections are up so far this month. State Department of Revenue officials say they collected more than $1.3 billion in the first half of May, and that's about 12 percent higher than the same period last year. Marketplace will have all the day's business news at 630. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru. Introducing the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra on Route 60 in Belmont and at citysidesubaru.com. Love is now electric. And La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, Latin American fare with a modern twist. Drop-off lunch catering for all occasions in greater Boston. LaCuchara.com. 
I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. And our weather forecast clear tonight. Temperatures in the upper 40s. Sunny tomorrow. Highs in the 60s. Sunshine Wednesday. With temperatures getting into the low 70s, we do have a chance of showers later in the day, early in the evening on Wednesday. It's 56 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises. Committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org solutions. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. How can a website tell for certain that a visitor is over 18 or 21? In several states, lawmakers have told tech companies, figure it out. The goal is to restrict kids' access to social networks and porn sites. Right now, it's easy to lie and get around age limits. The catch is, stricter verification systems raise privacy concerns. Emma Roth of The Verge has been writing about the wave of new laws and the effort to balance child safety with privacy. She's here for our All Tech Considered segment. Welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. Lots of websites make you check a box that says, yes, I'm old enough to continue. But some states have already changed this policy, right? What's going on? Right. So in three states right now, Utah, Arkansas, and Louisiana, there are already age verification tools in place for people to access social media sites or porn sites. In Louisiana and Utah, they have laws that aim to block users under the age of 18 from viewing porn. And in Arkansas, they require social media companies to implement age verification that blocks users under 18. So this is already in place in Louisiana. What does it look like there? Yeah, so they are using something called All Pass Trust. What this system is, is that you kind of upload a government ID to it, and the website will then check that and see if you're of agent. You'll either be let into the site or not, depending on how old you are. What other age verification options are on the table right now? So far, people have come up with ways maybe to use a credit card or a government ID to verify your age. However, this might exclude some adults, especially those with lower incomes, as they might not have access to a credit card or a government-issued ID. There's also something called face-based age detection, and this uses facial analysis to estimate the ages of users, so this will require access to a device's camera. Another possibility is an inferential age verification system that essentially guesses your age based on your browsing history or your activity on a platform. How accurate is that? Well, that's the thing. It's going to be more difficult to kind of assess someone's age based on that information, and it could result in false positives that somebody is under 18, or it could even imply that someone's over the age of 18 when they're not. Are there also privacy implications for that? There is. I mean, anything that involves giving away your government ID or a credit card, it always poses the risk of that information being hacked or leaked. These are two important competing values, privacy concerns and child safety. Is there any consensus, even an emerging sense, of how to balance these two things? Right now, there honestly isn't. 
when it comes to privacy advocates and civil liberties lawyers, they both are in agreement that there's kind of no sound way to implement age verification at this time. And a lot of lawmakers are kind of rushing into this, but we really don't have a sense of what we can do yet to safely implement these methods. Do you think this marks a larger shift in the way policymakers are thinking about access to the internet and who can go where with what rules? With this, with the introduction of these age verification methods, there's a chance that the internet could become more closed than ever. And the internet may never be the same with these methods put in place. That's Emma Roth, reporter at The Verge. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Support for All Tech Considered comes from Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. And from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at BetterHelp.com public. Utah's largest healthcare provider looked like it was on the path to expanding gender-affirming surgery options for adults. But in January, the state passed a law banning gender-affirming care for minors, and now the hospital system says it will not offer those additional adult services. Sage Miller at member station KUER reports. Amber Chevrier knew something wasn't right with her body since puberty. But she didn't learn the words to describe how she felt until her mid-20s when she met a trans woman. Everything that she described as being her before she came out was how I was feeling all of the time. Chevrier made the decision to surgically transition. She chose to use Intermountain Health because it was in her insurance network. Chevrier had her first consultation last October for what's known as bottom surgery, or procedures to modify genitalia as part of gender-affirming care. But months into preparing for that, she received a call in late February from a social worker with Intermountain's LGBTQ health program. Who informed me that Intermountain was changing policies. And when they did that, uh, the the policy change was that they were no longer allowing bottom surgeries for um, trans patients, for patients specifically diagnosed with gender dysphoria. Chevrier, who is 33 years old, says she was about six months away from getting a surgery date. I wasn't expecting that type of news. Uh, My mind kind of went blank for the rest of the conversation because it just was crushing. She wasn't expecting the news because when Utah passed a new law banning gender-affirming surgeries in January, it was only for trans youth. It's still legal for adults in the state to get bottom surgery. Intermountain says it has never performed bottom surgeries for gender care, but Chevrier says the health system was preparing her to get it. Sue Robbins, a trans advocate with the group Equality Utah, says it looks like Intermountain changed its policies right after the law passed banning gender-affirming care for minors, SB 16. They had been scheduling uh, preliminary appointments or pre-op appointments to start working with who would be their first patients, and then they started canceling those um, after SB 16. Intermountain isn't talking to reporters about the cancellations, which suggest a change in policy. But in a memo sent to staff, it said no single event prompted the decision to continue offering the same services in the future that we have been providing in the past. Intermountain recently hired a doctor with experience in doing those procedures. That doctor declined to be interviewed for this story. Sue Robbins is suspicious. It's really tough on the community because uh, we feel like we had 
made a lot of advances. So this feels like a big blowback. And when you feel like your rights are being taken away and you know it's misinformation, they can be hard. For Chevrier, it'll take time for her to feel supported going through the surgery process again. But it won't stop her. It's important because it's who I am. Um, I was born and raised being told that I was a boy. I am not. I'm a woman. And I deserve to have the care that allows me to express that. But she isn't confident her surgery will ever take place at an Intermountain facility. For NPR News, I'm Sage Miller in Salt Lake City. Tomorrow on All Things Considered, we'll talk with a journalist who is leaving the newsroom for the classroom. After getting a close look at teaching life through a reporting assignment, he decided to switch careers. To hear that story, turn on your radio or ask your smart speaker to play your local station. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes on All Things Considered, we'll have a conversation with Patricia Arquette about her role in the new Apple TV Plus series, High Desert. In our forecast, clear tonight, temperatures in the 40s. Tomorrow, sunny with highs in the 60s. Wednesday, mostly sunny, although we could see showers later in the day or Wednesday night. And sunshine returns on Thursday with highs in the 60s. 56 degrees in Boston. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. And the Master's in Applied Economics at Boston College. Flexible, rigorous, relevant to elevate your impact in a changing world. bc.edu slash msae. How can teachers respond to fights in school, weapons smuggled into buildings, chaos in classrooms? I fear every day, you know, I really fear. The debate over tactics from expulsions to calling the police. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Talks between President Biden and the Republican House Speaker are set to resume shortly after a series of walkouts and accusations over the weekend. The Treasury Department says we have just 10 days to avert what many economists say could be a catastrophic default. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy told reporters today a deal must be reached this week with enough time for lawmakers to consider it and avoid sending the economy into recession. We make sure you get 72 hours so everybody can read it. Um, then you pass it in the House and you send it to the Senate. I think the Senate could probably act faster than I thought in the past, uh, but we're going to need a couple days to write it and to make sure that everyone's able to read it and vote on it. The two sides are trying to resolve one of their biggest sticking points, how to cap government spending. President Biden has ruled out the possibility of invoking the 14th Amendment as a solution for now because it could get tied up in the courts. 
A new survey from the Federal Reserve finds inflation and dwindling savings are weighing on folks' financial well-being. NPR's Scott Horsley tells us more than one in three surveyed said their fortunes had worsened over the last year. Nearly three-quarters of the people who answered the survey last fall said they're doing at least okay financially, but that was a smaller share than the year before. While about a third of the respondents said they got a raise or promotion last year, a larger proportion said they'd seen a rise in expenses. Nearly two-thirds said they'd cut back on certain products or switched to cheaper alternatives as a result of rising prices. And about half of those surveyed said their savings had gone down. As a result, fewer people said they could cover an unexpected $400 bill with savings. Overall, financial well-being was the lowest it's been since the early months of the pandemic. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Stocks finish mixed on Wall Street as the markets wait to see what happens in Washington over the debt ceiling. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon. I'm Deborah Becker. Well-known Boston Marathon wheelchair competitor Rick Hoyt has died. Hoyt was part of a father-son team where his dad, the late Dick Hoyt, would push him through the marathon route, and they competed in dozens of marathons. Dick Hoyt told WBUR in 2014 that he wanted to be an inspiring symbol of resourcefulness. Our message is, yes, you can. There isn't anything you can't do as long as you make up your mind to do it. And there's no such word as no. Rick Hoyt was 61 years old. Three former students at Arlington Catholic High School are suing Boston Archbishop Sean O'Malley and two of his top lieutenants. They argue that church officials should have known about the alleged abuse that happened to them between 2011 and 2016. WBUR's Simone Rios reports. Attorney Mitchell Garabedian brought the civil suit on behalf of the three former students. Garabedian told reporters the public needs to know what the archdiocese knew about allegations at the school. It's time for Bishop O'Malley to reveal what he has substantively in those secret files concerning the sexual abuse of three innocent children. The archdiocese says the allegations against the principal were reported to authorities and the principal was removed from the school. Garabedian says officials are investigating the claims. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. Part of the red line is scheduled to be shut down tonight and every night through Thursday. Buses will replace trains between JFKU Mass and Braintree Station starting at 8.45 each night. Regular service resumes at the start of the next day. The time is 4.34. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture, committed to offering eco-friendly options that are sustainably made and safe for your home and the environment. Locations at CircleFurniture.com and Boston University Student Employment, connecting you to smart, reliable students for part-time work. Free job listings at bu.edu seo. In our forecast, clear tonight, temperatures in the upper 40s, tomorrow sunny, highs in the 60s. It's 56 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at indeed.com slash NPR. 
This is NPR. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Federal law protects the firearms industry from lawsuits if their products are misused. But the law has exceptions. And two lawsuits filed after last year's school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, allege that the maker of the weapon, Georgia-based Daniel Defense, can be held liable. The reason, according to some legal experts, is how they market their products. From member station WABE in Atlanta, Sam Greenglass reports. May 24th, 2022 was awards day at Robb Elementary School. Fourth grader Maya Zamora won three, math, robotics, and honor roll. Not long after, an 18-year-old walked into the school and started shooting. Maya had to be airlifted to a hospital and has had more than 60 surgeries. Christina Zamora says her daughter had been a fearless child, but not anymore. Maya shows a fear of this world that she had never shown before. Someone unexpectedly knocking on the door is a scary trigger for her. Last year, the Zamoras became the second family to file a lawsuit against the school district, law enforcement, the gun store, and gun maker Daniel Defense. We need to speak up for, for our daughter, for our family, for children in the future. Maybe, you know, this will make a change. 19 children died. They were massacred by an 18-year-old boy. There's something wrong there. In 2005, Congress granted broad immunity to gun manufacturers. But some legal experts believe gun makers can be held responsible for these mass shootings if they deceptively market their products. Georgia State University law professor Timothy Lydon says Daniel Defense is notorious for its provocative marketing. Lydon is an expert on health and safety liability and says the lawsuits argue the company violated federal trade law by unfairly marketing its products to civilians as tools for offensive military-style operations. And they also allege that the placement of this AR-15-style weapon in video games allowed young men in particular to fantasize about use of this weapon in a way that would simulate the kind of violence that we saw in Uvalde. After the Sandy Hook school shooting, families made a similar argument in Connecticut against the gunmaker Remington, which was in bankruptcy at the time. And while the families won a $73 million payment, it didn't change a whole lot. It's not like a manufacturer came to the table and said, we admit liability here for the carelessness of our marketing practices. This was a bankruptcy in which bankruptcy creditors paid out in order to get the company back into business. So while gun control supporters cheered the settlement, the suit left a lot of legal questions unresolved, meaning Uvalde could be the biggest test yet of the industry's liability protections. Daniel Defense didn't respond to an interview request, but has called the lawsuit politically motivated and legally unfounded. Mark Oliva is a spokesman for the National Shooting Sports Foundation, an industry group. Trying to sue a fire manufacturer for the crimes committed by a remote third party would be the same thing as trying to sue Ford and Anheuser-Busch for the deaths caused by drunk driving. If the Uvalde cases get past the immunity law and are allowed a trial, the courts would still have to consider another set of thorny questions, like whether the company's marketing is protected by the First Amendment. But Lydon says whatever happens, these cases put more focus on gun makers. You only need one or two lawsuits to win to transform the whole industry. If it got planted in Connecticut and it flowers in Uvalde, that might be enough. And if it never takes root there, it's likely to pop up in Chicago or in California. Some states are passing laws that would make it easier to file these suits against gun makers. But Mark Oliva says the industry is pushing back. 
the question you're asking me then, Sam, is are we going to bend to the idea that uh, we're going to suffer death through a thousand cuts? I think your answer to that is we are challenging the law in New York. We are challenging the law in New Jersey. We've challenged the law in Delaware. Back in Texas, the Zamoras want to make Wednesday's anniversary as normal a day as they can. Right now, they're focused on their daughter's recovery, but they hope accountability will come too. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. Time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. Today's story comes from Leah Bartel. It was 1994, and I was 20 years old. I had stayed for the summer at my college campus in Connecticut just to work in the library and earn some money. And a few of my friends had stayed as well. So one night, I was over at a friend's house and decided to walk home. It was about 2.30 in the morning, and I had to walk quite a distance from one end of the campus to the other. I was walking down a very dark street, and two men approached me. They were both really tall, and I'm about five feet tall and small. And they were clearly drunk. One of them was standing in front of me and the other one was standing behind me. And I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what was going to happen, but I knew it was going to be bad. And all of a sudden, a car pulled over and two people got out of the car, a man and a woman. And the man asked me, are you okay? And I said, no. And he immediately engaged with the two men to try to get them away from me. And I don't know what happened next because I just ran. I was so terrified. I ran straight to my house and locked the doors. I don't know what happened that night, but I do know that those two people saved me from a horrible fate. And I am so grateful to them and they are my unsung heroes. If I could say anything to them, I would say thank you for noticing what so many people would have driven past and for speaking up at a moment when you didn't have to. Leah Bartel of Woburn, Massachusetts. Leah says, I hope my story inspires someone to step in, to help a stranger in need, or simply to ask the question, are you okay? You can find more stories like this on the My Unsung Hero podcast. And to share the story of your unsung hero, visit myunsunghero.org for instructions on how to record a voice memo. Support for My Unsung Hero comes from Angie. Angie's list is now Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners get home projects done well. From everyday repairs to dream remodels, reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. The teenage years can be confusing, full of drama and difficult emotions. Adults may see the teenage brain as a mystery, but for some scientists, it's a marvel. It's an incredible brain. It's just perfect for what it needs to do. 
And what it needs to do is gain experiences. Navigating the adolescent brain on the next Morning Edition. Listen on air, online, or by asking your smart speaker to play your NPR member station. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. A proposal to build one of the country's largest wind farms in Idaho is drawing opposition from Japanese Americans. About 400 turbines would be near a World War II incarceration site. Rachel Cohen from Boise State Public Radio reports. We're currently standing in Block 22. Kurt Ikeda leads visitors inside an old barrack at the Minidoka National Historic Site near Twin Falls, Idaho. There's a bit of laundry and latrine over there. Uh, the bathrooms were not ready until December of 1943. 13,000 Japanese Americans were imprisoned here over three years during World War II. The National Park Service has maintained Minidoka since 2001. Ikeda is a park ranger. His grandfather was incarcerated at a different site in Texas. The only difference between Minidoka and where my grandfather was incarcerated is that it's not protected. It's not preserved. Crystal City is now a high school. He feels it's his role to protect what's left at Minidoka. Many Japanese Americans nationwide say the proposed wind farm on nearby federal public land threatens that. The Biden administration has set big goals for renewable energy. This project, called Lava Ridge, would help the transition away from fossil fuels to prevent the worst effects from climate change. The wind turbines could power more than 300,000 homes. Aaron Shigaki is on board with Biden's goals. And at the same time, he made promises to communities of color relating to environmental justice. Shigaki is a fourth-generation or Yonsei Japanese-American. Many of her relatives were incarcerated at Minidoka. She's fighting the wind farm. She says it would change the experience of going to the historic site. It's meant to evoke a sense of loneliness. So that modern-day people could understand what Japanese-Americans saw and felt, you know, in that desert location. She made her position clear at an open house earlier this year to discuss a draft environmental review. In their own report, it's acknowledged that there would be psychological harm done to our community if such a project were to go forward. The federal agency and private company proposing the wind project say they're listening to the community's concerns. They've proposed two alternative plans that would reduce the number of turbines, push them farther from Minidoka, up to nine miles away. To some, it's still not good enough. They haven't hit the mark yet on coming up with something that we could support. Kristen Brangle is with the National Parks Conservation Association. It's working with the Friends of Minidoka on a new designation for the historic site and surrounding public lands, something called an area of critical environmental concern. It would prevent wind turbines on more than 300 square miles. We don't want to fight every permit that comes up. There's going to be more. Um, this isn't going to be the end. And so what we need to do is put some protections in place. Brangle says her organization also supports renewable energy, but she says the government needs to take a step back and choose the best places to cite projects. The agency is reviewing 11,000 public comments it received on the draft report this spring. A final report and decision could be out this winter. 
In July, more than 200 people will make an annual pilgrimage to Minidoka that Aaron Chigaki is organizing. It's always a treat to have a gathering of survivors. They're all getting up there in their late 70s, 80s, and 90s. She says the wind farm proposal will make this year's reunion that much more emotional. For NPR News, I'm Rachel Cohen. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And you're listening on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Thanks for being with us. Coming up in about five minutes, more women are joining a lawsuit against the state of Texas. They say the state's abortion bans put them at risk while they were facing pregnancy-related medical emergencies. The time is 11 minutes before 5. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Weston Nurseries, offering a broad selection of landscape-sized trees, shrubs, perennials, and native plants in Hopkinton, Chelmsford, and Hingham, westonnurseries.com. And Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help animal welfare organizations throughout the Northeast, oceanstatejoblot.com. In our forecast, clear skies tonight, temperatures in the 40s. Tomorrow should be sunny with highs in the 60s. Wednesday, sunshine, but later in the day there could be some showers. Temperatures getting into the low 70s on Wednesday and sunny on Thursday with highs in the 60s. WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the engineering design workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. And Babson College. The Babson MBA helps you become a professional who takes action, leads with confidence, and tackles complex global challenges. Acquire the highly sought-after entrepreneurial mindset with a Babson MBA, ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Visit babson.edu slash MBA. Florida law now bans public colleges from offering general ed classes that, quote, distort significant events or teach identity politics. It was signed by Governor Ron DeSantis. Florida's getting out of that game. Um, If you want to do things like gender ideology, go to Berkeley. Is it constitutional for a government to tell colleges what they can and can't teach? That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I want you to meet Peggy. And you too, Diane. Get out of my house. Get out of my residence. Ma'am, there are children here, and I'm going to need you to tone it down. I'm done. Take it down a notch. (laughs) A taste there of Peggy, played by Patricia Arquette in the new TV series High Desert. Peggy's life is chaos, to put it mildly. She is an on-again, off-again addict. Her family is trying to evict her from her house, the same house, by the way, where her husband, who has just been released from prison and who she is trying to divorce, has just shown up. She is working as a saloon keeper in a Wild West theme park in the California desert. The roof of her car has just been sheared off by a truck. And that list doesn't actually begin to capture everything Peggy's got going on. Patricia Arquette, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I am exhausted just reading the list of everything happening in (laughs) Peggy's life. And I could have kept going another five minutes. Is it exhausting playing Peggy? No, it's not. It's very joyful to play Peggy. I love Peggy so much. Mm. And I felt like after the pandemic, I really needed to laugh and that we all need to laugh. 
And so I felt like this material was a real gift for me personally. She has a lot of energy, so it takes a lot of energy to play her because she's driving almost every scene and she's doing 50 things at once really to avoid her pain. So she's constantly creating like landmines and distractions and she's kind of a Tasmanian devil. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. Um because Peggy is, as we've said, chaotic. She's disorganized. She's a total pain in the butt. Mm -hmm. And yet I just was rooting for her 100%. And I wondered, is it her flaws that make her likable? Like, I'm not sure I would have been rooting for her so hard if she were perfect and she had it all together. And I think it's interesting that you say that because I think we all have subconscious bias. And I don't think we're used to seeing troubled and imperfect women in TV so much that are supposed to be our heroes and also our leads. So it's nice to mix it all up and put it in a giant soup pot and pull out your anarchist cookbook and, <laughs> and make this giant crazy stew. Um, yeah, I think it is her flaws that are endearing. And it's also, you know, she's her own worst enemy. I want to give people a little bit more of the plot and some of the twists and turns. She tries to reinvent herself as a PI, a private investigator. And this is a scene where she's trying to negotiate her salary with her soon-to-be boss, played by the actor Brad Garrett. And you're going to give me 50% of all the business I bring in. Are you out of your mind? 45. No. All right, 30. It's as low as I can go. 10. Fine. And you got to get into PI class and work your way towards a license if you want to be a PI. Oh, come on. School's a racket. They spit you out financially illiterate and honestly, with no real sex education. I learned more at home. <laughs> I'm trying to make it through listening, though, without laughing. <laughs> I think we've all been through a salary negotiation or two like that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she's got a logic. It's a crazy one. Yeah. And part of it is, I mean, she really is putting up these diversionary smoke screens constantly <laughs> to get her way. Yeah. And it works a lot. Yeah. Although the, the salary that she ultimately lands is zero. We should note she's an unpaid intern at the end of the But, you know, she's letting him think that. Mm. But when she lands some of these rewards or that reward, then she's going to parlay that. You know, everything's got a bigger plan ahead of it. She's playing like, <laughs> she's playing, you know, 10th dimensional chess with herself. <laughs> <laughs> I saw an interview you gave where you said your family is always asking you to slow down, which you don't really seem to be doing. And I'm curious why? Because you've got nothing left to prove. You've played every role. You're the Academy Award winning Patricia Arquette. Why keep so busy? I don't know. I and mean, I was thinking about that. There's a part of me that feels like, oh, now that I'm 55, I do feel that clock ticking. Like, oh, this is my life. I'm here now. And there's all these things. And I want to do all these things. And I need to do all these things. And I want to have these experiences. And then also I know it also wards off depression for me. Ah. Being really engaged in something and focused on something 
and committed to it is one of my modes of self-care, my primary mode of self-care, even though on one hand it can drain me too. That feels so true. I'm also a woman in my 50s and somebody asked me the other day, you know, when are you going to hang it up? How long will you keep going? And I was like, what? I'm just getting going. Yeah. That sounds like you feel that as well. And I totally relate to the feeling of it's exhausting, but it's also what is giving you energy. Yeah, it's both. And honestly, to go to work with this cast, to have Brad and Bernadette and Matt and Christine and all of these incredible actors on the set making me laugh, the hardest thing was not to break character and laugh in the middle of a take. <laughs> Which you sometimes succeeded at and sometimes not from what I could glimpse. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, before I let you go, as you and I are speaking, as this show launches into the world, the Writers Guild of America is on strike. I know you have expressed support for the writers on strike. I do wonder, is it going to slow production of the show? Or are you worried it will slow momentum um, that you've created with this first season? Well, I have no idea. I don't know how long it'll go on for. But I do support the writer's strike. And I'm a fourth generation actor. I remember when Cable first started and my dad was striking with the Actors Guild about Cable. And we've had all these different iterations now of different kinds of contracts and different technologies. And one of the conversations the writers are having is about AI. And I think it's a very important conversation because it's being taught from material that those writers made. And I'm very worried for the future of film and television. I think they're gonna make a lot of superhero movies, movies that make a lot of money, but no one's gonna put in the AI to make the little movie of the girl and her dad who used to be a boxer and they're living on the fringes. Human beings tell the story of human beings. And one of the ways we do is through film and television. And if we lose that voice, we're really going to lose a lot. Well, Patricia Arquette, this has been a delight. Thank you. Thank you. I'm a big fan. Thank you for having me. Her new show, High Desert, is out now on Apple TV+. Plus. This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to develop new lung cancer therapies based on the discovery of the EGFR mutation. More about this momentum of discovery at DanaFarber.org stories. From Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from BritBox, with the new season of Grace, based on the detective novels by Peter James, Grace and more original mysteries, including The Bay and Karen Peary, are streaming at BritBox.com NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes, a look at how spiraling food prices affect the debt crisis that's looming for several countries, not just 
the United States. Forecast says clear tonight, lows going down into the 40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BG Catering Concepts. Planning weddings, corporate events, and other significant celebrations to feel special. BGCateringConcepts.com. And Sunbug Solar, helping to grow renewable energy in Massachusetts since 2009. To learn about solar energy employment opportunities, visit sunbugsolar.com. I'm WBUR State House reporter Steve Brown, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime on our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. President Biden and Speaker McCarthy try to reach an agreement on spending cuts with a looming deadline to try to deal with the nation's debt ceiling. It's Monday, May 22nd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up, what's happened in the five years since public educators took to the streets demanding better pay and benefits. I think it rose awareness around the injustices that exist in public education. Also this hour, more women join a lawsuit against the state of Texas. They say the state's abortion bans put them at risk. And Meta faces a record fine from the EU for allegedly breaking Europe's privacy standards. Forecast says clear and cool tonight, lows in the 40s. It's 5.01. First, this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy are set to meet at this hour at the White House. NPR's Tamara Keith reports the latest meeting comes as the deadline to increase the debt limit draws closer. The rhetoric is getting more urgent and pointed, with both congressional Republicans and White House officials accusing the other side of negotiating in bad faith. Challenges remain the same as they have been all along. Legislation to raise the debt ceiling will have to be bipartisan, since Democrats control the Senate and Republicans have a narrow majority in the House. But House Republicans want steep spending cuts in order to agree to raise the debt limit, arguing the U.S. simply can't keep racking up debt at the current pace. Democrats say Republicans are demanding too much austerity and haven't been open to closing tax loopholes and asking the wealthiest to pay more. It's not clear where a breakthrough might come. Tamara Keith, NPR News. South Carolina Senator Tim Scott has announced his bid for the Republican presidential nomination today in North Charleston, South Carolina. Scott, who's represented South Carolina in the Senate since 2013, talked about his own rise from poverty to prosperity and said that America is not a racist country. Scott is the only black Republican in the U.S. Senate. He takes on the frontrunner, former President Donald Trump and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. South Carolina is a pivotal early voting state for both Republicans and Democrats. The White House is announcing a conservation deal has been reached among the southwestern states to conserve large amounts of water from the Colorado River. 
NPR's Kirk Sigler reports the river has been shrinking at an alarming rate due to climate change and overuse. Water managers in Arizona, California, and Nevada have agreed to cut their water use by 3 million acre feet, or in layman's terms, well over a third of the entire traditional flow of the Colorado River. Much of this deal is happening thanks to a big infusion of federal funds that will do things like pay farmers to fallow some of their land and compensate water districts and tribes who voluntarily keep their legally entitled water in Lake Mead in order to prevent the nation's largest reservoir from going dry. California had for months refused to agree to a conservation plan brokered by the other states. This likely averts what many had feared mandatory, draconian water cuts enforced by the federal government. Kirk Sigler, NPR News. Facebook parent company Meta has been slapped with a $1.3 billion privacy fine by the European Union, with the company ordered to stop transferring users' personal information to the U.S. by October. Meta has previously warned services for its European users could be cut off and vowed to appeal. The company says there will be no immediate disruption to Facebook in Europe, though. A mixed close on Wall Street today. The Dow dropped 140 points. The Nasdaq rose 62 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon. I'm Deborah Becker. After a report showing an increase in pedestrian deaths in Boston, the city says it's taking steps to reduce speeding and vehicle crashes. The program will pay for more safety infrastructure, such as speed bumps and crossing signals, to try to make streets safer for both pedestrians and cyclists. On WBUR's Radio Boston today, Mayor Michelle Wu explained that the effort is preventing Our goal is to dramatically increase the number of intersections and parts of the city that we are touching with these improvements. There's funding in the budget that is under review by the city council right now for this to be implemented over the next year. A report by local uh, Safe Streets advocacy group Walk Boston found that pedestrian deaths in the city jumped by more than a third over the past two years. A Boston Marathon icon has died. Rick Hoyt and his late father, Dick Hoyt, competed together in more than 30 Boston marathons. Rick Hoyt had cerebral palsy, and his father, Dick, would push him throughout the 26.2-mile route in a specialized wheelchair. Rick Hoyt died this morning from complications with his respiratory system. He was 61 years old. In a statement, the Boston Athletic Association said the Hoyts were inspiring. The organization said the Hoyts' legacy will live on through the Rick and Dick Hoyt Award, which is given to those who exemplify advocacy and inclusion. Ukraine's ambassador to the United States is advising Boston College graduates to take responsibility for themselves and to draw strength from their loved ones. Oksana Marokova told BC graduates this afternoon to take action throughout their lives, even when they're frightened. There is a world of difference, and you will learn it in real life between being thrown into the arena and stepping into the arena. In that split second, when you decide to act, you change from victim to a hero. Markarova was appointed Ukraine's ambassador to the U.S. in April of 2021, months before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. In sports, Red Sox play the Angels in Anaheim tonight. And our forecast tonight should be clear and cool. Temperatures in the upper 40s, sunny tomorrow with highs in the 60s. It's 56 degrees in Boston.
WBUR supporters include Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Five years ago, teachers across the U.S. started the Red for Ed movement. They staged walkouts demanding higher pay and better benefits. In a moment, we'll hear from educators and union leaders about where the movement stands today. First, though, more women are adding their names to a lawsuit challenging abortion bans in the state of Texas. All of them say they faced medically complicated pregnancies and were denied abortions under state law, putting their health, their lives at risk. Jessica Bernardo is among the women joining the lawsuit originally filed in March. I'm speaking up now and joining this case because I never want another human being to go through what I and other Texans have been through. This has to be stopped. NPR Sarah McCammon has been following this case all along. She's here with an update. Hey, Sarah. Hi there. All right, let's back up, set the stage. What exactly is this lawsuit about? So a group of Texas women who faced complicated pregnancies, many of them uh, potentially life-threatening, are suing the state of Texas over its multiple abortion bans, which they say are putting patients' lives and health at risk. That lawsuit started in March with five women and two doctors, and today it's expanding to include eight more women, so a total of 15 plaintiffs. Now, Jessica Bernardo, who we just heard from, is one of the new plaintiffs. And during a press conference today, she said she was told by her doctor that the fetus she was carrying was suffering from a fatal complication, that her life could also be at risk without an abortion. And so she requested an abortion in Texas, but says she was denied one by a hospital ethics committee and wound up traveling out of state. Another new plaintiff, Elizabeth Weller, says her water broke too early for the fetus to survive. She says she was told by healthcare providers she'd have to wait until she developed an infection before they could terminate the pregnancy in Texas. The darkest week of my life began as I left the hospital with amniotic fluid still leaking down my leg. With every passing day, I felt the state's intentional cruelty. My baby would not survive, and my life didn't matter. There was nothing I could do about it. Now, the Center for Reproductive Rights, which is representing these plaintiffs, says several women have come forward since that lawsuit was first filed in March to say that they have similar stories. Mm. And what specifically are they hoping to accomplish with this lawsuit? Well, it's important to understand this suit is fairly limited in its scope. You know, most abortions are illegal in Texas now. The state's abortion laws only include limited medical exceptions. And the lawsuit is not trying to overturn those laws wholesale. Instead, it's asking for specific clarity about what the medical exceptions really mean, because doctors say they're not sure what they're allowed to do. Molly Duane is a senior staff attorney at the Center for Reproductive Rights, and she says she wants Texas courts to provide that clarity for health care providers. I think what is important to recognize about the fact that we amended this lawsuit to add so many new plaintiffs is that it is so clear, if it wasn't from our initial filing, so clear now that this is an ongoing pervasive problem in the state of Texas and around the country. So, Sarah, when supporters of these abortion bans hear that argument, hear stories like the ones of women that we've just been sharing, how do they respond? Mm -hmm. 
Well, generally, they've responded by suggesting that doctors may not be interpreting these laws correctly, that they don't really prohibit abortion, at least in some of these cases. For example, I sat down a few weeks ago with Jonathan Mitchell. He's a Texas attorney who worked with state lawmakers there to write SB8, one of the laws being challenged here. Um, that's the one that relies on private civil lawsuits for enforcement. And here's what Mitchell said about these types of cases. It concerns me, yeah, because the statute was never intended to restrict access to medically necessary abortions. The statute was written to draw a clear distinction between abortions that are medically necessary and abortions that are purely elective. Only the purely elective abortions are unlawful under SB 8. Meanwhile, whatever was intended, doctors say they worry about being sued, losing their licenses, going to prison even if their medical judgment is questioned. And Texas's Attorney General Ken Paxton has said in response to this lawsuit that he will continue to defend and enforce Texas anti-abortion laws. All right. And what's the timescale on this? What's coming next? Well, I'd expect a hearing at some point in the future. For now, the Center for Reproductive Rights is asking for an injunction to block enforcement of these Texas abortion bans as it, they concern patients with pregnancy complications and health care providers who are caring for them. They say that these laws are creating a health care crisis that will continue without intervention from the courts. NPR's Sarah McCammon reporting. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you. Once a week, public school teachers across the country still abide by a shared tradition. To this day, we push teachers to wear red for ed on Wednesdays. It's a reminder of the red for ed movement that began five years ago. Teachers and public school staff were fed up with low wages, shrinking benefits, and what many describe as a lack of respect from their legislators. So in spring of 2018, educators took to the streets. NPR's Janaki Mehta talked to teachers in four different states to see what has and hasn't changed since then. Teaching is in Cherishumate's blood. My mother was a teacher. In fact, she taught in a one-room schoolhouse in Thurman, West Virginia. Multitudes of teachers in our family. Shoemate's been teaching for more than 40 years in Beckley, West Virginia, and she plans to stick with it. But she never intended to pass down the family tradition to her own children. I have two daughters. I would never have paid for an education for them to become a teacher. They're both attorneys. <laughs> Shoemate has had a second job for most of her working life. It's been necessary in a state that ranks in the bottom three when it comes to average teacher salaries. Low funding was at the heart of why record numbers of teachers walked out of their public schools in 2018. From West Virginia to Kentucky to Arizona and beyond. Really at the center of it was this realization that our state legislature had neglected public education for so long. That's veteran Arizona high school teacher Rodrigo Palacios. Five years since the Red for Ed movement began, we wanted to know if things had gotten any better for teachers and school staff. The answer was mixed. Here are teachers Christina Trosper of Kentucky, Valerie Lovato of Colorado, and Palacios in Arizona. The legislatures are still killing us. I'm actually really happy with um, what we've gotten. It's made a little bit of a difference, sure. But I think in these last five years, those raises have come with conditions. One example of those conditions, in Arizona, teachers won a 20% salary increase over the course of three years. But the devil is always in the detail. That's Palacios again, who's now the president of his local union chapter in Tempe. 
He's talking about the fact that the funding for that 20% raise, it left out a lot of essential school employees who are not classroom teachers. There was no way that we're going to be able to sit here comfortably and say, we got ours, custodial staff, administrative assistants, support staff. You're going to have to do your own work to fight for this stuff. West Virginia teachers also got a pay raise, and theirs was 5%. But it hasn't been enough to keep up with their insurance premiums, which just went up again this year. And I can remember thinking, okay, I'm losing money on this pay raise. That's Shara Shoemate again. Over in Colorado, Sarah Pomeroy wouldn't say she lost money on the 6% raise that came out of her district's walkouts. That was a good amount of money. But then, I mean, the reality is I'm still living in a van. Pomeroy is an elementary school teacher in Summit County. She's been living out of that van for nearly two years now. It's the only way she could afford to live without roommates in the mountain town she calls home. I think at this point, I could not do another winter. It's cold. (laughs) Pomeroy doesn't want to move. She loves the friends and community she's built, that she gets to ski, rock climb, and teach. And in order to keep teaching, she said she's had to take her blinders off about the profession. She stayed involved in her union. In fact, like Palacios, she's now her chapter's president. She says that might not have happened without the Red for Ed movement. I think it rose awareness around the injustices that exist in public education. And I also think it gave teachers a space to raise their voice. Knowing that we have a voice and it's okay for us to speak up. Just that camaraderie. That's Valerie Lovato, also in Colorado. She teaches in Denver School District, which agreed to an average pay raise of almost 12% for both teachers and support staff. Unlike the other educators I spoke to, Lovato says she was happy with what Denver teachers won. It felt like I could upgrade my house and, you know, get a new car. I felt comfortable doing that because I knew how much I was going to be making. But Lovato says she's locked into teaching in Denver, or else she'd risk a pay cut. In Kentucky, Nima Brewer was part of her district support staff when the Red for Ed movement took off. She says the walkout left many school employees, like her, eager to do more. So she helped form a statewide union for teachers and public employees. Everybody rode this wave and it's really high of activism and solidarity and then kind of wondered what to do next. And so what we did next was, was we got rid of our governor. In 2018, Kentucky's Republican governor was an outspoken critic of public school teachers. The next year, those same teachers successfully organized to get him out and get Democrat Andy Bashir in. We did the heavy lifting of moving Republican educators to either not vote or to vote for Andy. And that was a beautiful thing. Like, I'll be honest with you, I cried for the first time in probably two years when that happened. She says that feeling of agency, the ability to make change through organizing and action, that stuck around. And it can go a long way in making educators feel like they matter. It's not easy, but we're going to keep going. And I would hope that our Red for Ed brothers and sisters would keep going. Like, yes, it sucks and it's hard, but you have got to keep going because if not us, who else? That's a good question. At a time when fewer people have been going to college to become teachers, and many schools are struggling to staff classrooms. Janaki Mehta, NPR News.
It's All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Coming up on All Things Considered, the ongoing negotiations in Washington to try to break the impasse on spending cuts as the deadline draws closer to lift the debt ceiling. It's 18 minutes past five. WBUR supporters include Comcast Business, providing businesses with cyber threat security designed to keep devices protected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. And UMass Chan Medical School, ranked by U.S. News & World Report as best in New England for primary care education. Learn more at umassmed.edu. In business news, gas prices in Massachusetts remain relatively steady. As the Memorial Day holiday weekend approaches, AAA Northeast says the average price of a gallon of regular gas in the state dropped a penny in the last week to $3.48. On Wall Street, the Dow dropped 140 points today as Wall Street waited for the results of a meeting meant to avoid a default on the U.S. government's debt. Those efforts to stave off default are the topic of a special on-marketplace tonight which you can hear right here on 90.9 WBUR, beginning at 6.30. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from BioNova Scientific, a biologics CDMO providing development and GMP manufacturing services to small and mid-sized biopharmaceutical companies. BioNovaScientific.com, where concept becomes cure. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it? To this station instead. We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. You can listen to WBUR when and how you want. You can pause and rewind live radio with the new WBUR app. Download it in the App Store today. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Plymouth Gin Distillery. Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, Distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin, since 1793. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. In the United States, there has been intense focus on the -the down-to-the-wire negotiations between President Biden and House Republicans over whether to authorize payment of America's debt. But across the world, a different type of debt crisis is looming. It's already forcing dozens of lower-income countries to make excruciating choices between funding schools and hospitals or avoiding defaults. And it is driving up the cost of food to record levels. NPR's Nareet Eisenman reports. To understand the magnitude of this problem, we need to go back to the early 2010s, when, thanks to historically low interest rates, the cost of borrowing money became very affordable. This was really helpful for governments of many low- and middle-income countries. Take those in Africa. The population of Africa has doubled over two decades, uh, and the infrastructure needs are massive. That's David McNair, head of global policy at the advocacy group The One Campaign. So finance ministers did the logical thing and said, you know, here's cheap money, let's borrow to fund this infrastructure. They went to traditional sources, governments and banks in wealthy countries like the U.S., multilateral organizations like the World Bank. 
but also to newer lenders like China. What they weren't expecting were a series of once-in-a-generation shocks. Starting with the COVID pandemic, the resulting economic slowdown has taken a big bite out of the revenues low- and middle-income countries count on to pay the interest on their debt. Then layer on another problem, Putin invades Ukraine. Because Russia and Ukraine supply so much of the world's grain and oil, the war helped drive up already record-high prices for food and other goods. Which brings us to a third shock. In the United States, the Federal Reserve has tried to tame recent inflation by raising U.S. interest rates. Many countries' debt is denominated in U.S. dollars. And it was loaned on variable interest rates. So these hikes by the U.S. Fed? It's almost like, you know, if you had like a mortgage or a credit card and the rates went up. Because the cost of servicing debt has gone up, countries can no longer pay it. The upshot? One in five people on the planet now lives in a country that's at or nearing what's called debt distress, meaning there's a high likelihood the nation will default. This includes 60 percent of low-income countries and plenty of middle-income countries, too. We've already seen defaults in Sri Lanka, in Ghana. Pakistan could default next month. Countries and their citizens pay a high price when they default because their credit rating plummets. So for years after, it can become prohibitively expensive for them to borrow money needed for vital services, like subsidizing food at this time of high prices. But McNair says the trade-offs countries make to avoid defaulting are often equally damaging. They're having to make impossible choices about whether to pay salaries, whether to keep schools and hospitals open. Or use those funds to keep paying their debt bills. Nigeria is now spending 96% of its revenues on debt service. Kenya delayed salary payments to thousands of government workers in March to avoid a default. It gets worse. Sarah Menker is founder and CEO of the data company Grow Intelligence. She notes that those U.S. interest rate increases have also strengthened the dollar and therefore weakened the currencies of many low- and middle-income countries. And because food is generally priced in dollars... What that means is that if you're an importer of food into that country, the price of actual imports has gone up drastically. In places like Lebanon, they're up almost 2,000%. Menker says she's especially worried about a subset of countries, including Egypt and Turkey, that, on top of all this, happen to have sizable short-term loans coming due for full repayment in the next two years. To settle up, these countries will have to draw on their reserves of U.S. dollars, which is going to devalue their currencies even further. And that then sort of drives inflation even further for food. You end up in this very precarious situation. There is a solution. The holders of all this global debt could agree in a plan to take a loss on it. But multiple efforts by world leaders have gotten bogged down in accusations by Western officials that China is largely to blame for unfair lending practices. Still, McNair says the biggest holdup is that key leaders in the U.S. and other wealthy countries aren't treating this as the emergency that it is. Nareet Eisenman, NPR News. European regulators are taking a big swing at Facebook's owner, Meta. Today, officials in Europe fined Meta a record $1.3 billion over the company's data privacy practices. NPR tech reporter Bobby Allen is here to discuss what this means for all of us who use Facebook and Instagram. Hey, Bobby. Hey, Ari. $1.3 billion is a big number. What's the story behind it? It sure is a big number. It's a lot of money even to super rich Meta. But the big
bigger picture story here is this is really a window into tension between Washington and Brussels over how and where data collected by popular apps like WhatsApp, Instagram, and Facebook, where all that data should be stored, right? European regulators say Meta is violating EU laws by transferring the personal data of Europeans to the US, where the EU worries that the data could be accessed by US national intelligence services. But if you ask Meta, they say there is just no way not to send data to the US. Are we just talking about different standards of privacy here? Yeah, that is a big part of it. Um, in Europe, there are, of course, very stringent data privacy laws, and the U.S. does not have a national data privacy law. I talked to one former Facebook executive who used to lead the company's security team, and he told me that this is really about more than just meta, right? The fine and order really came about because Europeans fear, like I mentioned, that intelligent agencies, intelligence agencies like the NSA might harvest the data of Europeans. But almost every multinational company, Ari, has some data that goes to the U.S. There's no way around that. So if this does hold up in courts, it could really affect many companies. Um, Anupam Shander is at Georgetown Law, and he told me that the fine and order really does show that European regulators just do not trust the American government. Meta might be the target today, but uh, eventually this could potentially impact a lot of companies. Meta is just caught in the crossfire. It could be any company, a European company or an American company, because European companies also transfer data to the United States because everyone relies upon American internet and digital services. How has Meta responded to this? Well, Meta right now is focused on trying to appeal this order and fine. Meta said if it's upheld, they might have to completely pull their services out of the EU. That's obviously quite dramatic. Shander at Georgetown Law said stopping data transfers to the U.S. would be an incredible undertaking. I do think that it's going to be very hard for Facebook to actually achieve this. It's taken years for TikTok to uh, localize data within the United States, behind these firewalls. This is going to be a tremendous effort. And what does it mean for people in the U.S. and Europe who use Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, and other meta platforms? Mm -hmm. Right now, you know, as this plays out in the courts in Europe, there shouldn't be any service disruptions for Europeans or really anyone. But if this does survive Meta's challenge, things can get really messy. I mean, if Meta pulls all of its services, Facebook, WhatsApp, Facebook, others out of Europe, you can imagine how this would impact how we all share content, how we communicate and how we interact with each other and especially friends and family in Europe. That could get really complicated pretty fast, Ari. NPR's Bobby Allen on that record find for Meta today. Thanks, Bobby. Thanks, Ari. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes on All Things Considered, some of the reasons behind the opposition to one of the nation's largest proposed wind farms in Idaho. Our weather forecast, clear tonight, cool temperatures in the 40s. It'll be sunny tomorrow with highs in the 60s. Wednesday, sunshine, temperatures getting into the 70s. We do have a chance of showers later in the day on Wednesday and into Wednesday night, but sunshine returns on Thursday. It's 56 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Nuance. Nuance is committed to helping physicians restore their work-life balance with DAX, an AI-powered solution that automates clinical documentation. 
Learn more at nuance.com slash WBUR. Florida law now bans public colleges from offering general ed classes that, quote, distort significant events or teach identity politics. It was signed by Governor Ron DeSantis. Florida's getting out of that game. Um, if you want to do things like gender ideology, go to Berkeley. Is it constitutional for a government to tell colleges what they can and can't teach? That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. On Capitol Hill, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is striking an optimistic tone that he and President Biden can still reach a deal to lift the nation's debt limit. NPR's Claudia Grisales tells us both sides still have plenty of work to do to reach a deal by a June deadline. President Biden and Speaker McCarthy have about 10 days to reach an agreement in time for the earliest projection the country could breach the debt limit. Both sides are still far apart on proposed Republican spending cuts and other concessions. But McCarthy told reporters there's still time to make a deal. We can get a deal tonight, we get a deal tomorrow, but you've got to get something done this week to be able to pass it and move it to the Senate. Biden and McCarthy are meeting for their first conversation after talks saw a dramatic pause over the weekend. Each side accused the other of taking steps backwards in negotiations, but then resumed plans to meet again. Claudia Grisales, NPR News, the Capitol. In Texas, the mayor of Uvalde has apologized to the families of victims of last year's school shooting that killed 19 children and two teachers at Robb Elementary. Many families are still searching for answers about the failed law enforcement response from Texas Public Radio. Dan Katz says this week marks the first anniversary of the shooting. At a press conference ahead of the anniversary, Uvalde Mayor Don McLaughlin acknowledged how hard this week is for the victims' families. And we realize you still don't have the answers that you need and it's frustrating to all of us. McLaughlin said he did not have an update on the local DA's criminal investigation into the shooting response that saw 376 officers wait more than an hour to confront the gunman. The mayor did say the city and the victim's families are now on the same page about inviting the public to a candlelight vigil in Uvalde Wednesday night for anyone who wants to mourn with the victim's families. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon. I'm Deborah Becker. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says voters should decide whether City Councilor Ricardo Arroyo should keep his seat. That's amid calls for Arroyo to step down after he was named in investigations that led to the resignation of Massachusetts' top federal law enforcement official. WBUR's Rob Lane reports. Arroyo is facing criticism after his name appeared in federal ethics reports that prompted last week's resignation of U.S. Attorney Rachel Rollins. Texts uncovered by investigators seem to show Rollins serving as a de facto campaign advisor for Arroyo during his unsuccessful bid for the Suffolk County DA's job last year. Mayor Wu tells WBUR's Radio Boston it should be up to voters to evaluate whether Arroyo should serve another term as city councilor. Where behavior might be unethical but not illegal, that bond between people being elected and able to choose their representatives is very, very important. Boston voters will cast ballots in city council races this November. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane.
There's a large police presence at St. John's Prep in Danvers. After two incidents this afternoon, police were called to the campus after receiving reports of an active shooter. That turned out to be a hoax. But during the response, Danvers police say an officer's gun went off in a school bathroom. No one was hurt. The source of the initial fake call and the accidental gunfire by the officer remain under investigation. Boston is launching a new effort to try to reduce speed and vehicle crashes in the city. The program will include more safety infrastructure, such as new speed bumps and crossing signals to make neighborhoods safer for pedestrians and cyclists. A report by the Safe Streets Advocacy Group, known as Walk Boston, found that pedestrian deaths in the city increased by more than a third over the last two years. The time is 534. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. And Babson, top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. In our forecast, clear skies tonight, temperatures in the 40s, sunny tomorrow with highs in the 60s. Wednesday should be mostly sunny, maybe showers later in the day, but sunshine Thursday and Friday with highs in the 60s. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises. Committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive, nature.org slash solutions. From Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. Learn more at indeed.com slash NPR. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. On a Monday, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy have begun a meeting with high stakes for the U.S. economy. The deadline to lift the debt ceiling keeps drawing closer. The Treasury Department warns the government could run out of money to pay its bills by June 1st. White House correspondent Franco Ordonez is there at the White House. And Franco, what's the latest on the state of play in these talks? Well, I mean, Ari, you touched on it. Biden and McCarthy are really trying to revive budget talks that basically ground to a halt over the weekend. Both sides blamed each other for that breakdown. Republican leaders refused to raise the debt limit unless the president agrees to deeper spending cuts. McCarthy said this weekend that the government needs to spend less than it did last year. Now, Biden says he's open to spending cuts, but that some of his priorities need to be protected, things like Medicaid. The White House has proposed keeping spending flat this year and next, but Biden also wants to look at tax revenue as a way to reduce debt. The two sides seem far apart. Is there still time to reach a deal? Right. I mean, negotiators met last night and then again this morning. It's really up to Biden and McCarthy now to see if they can make some headway. Frankly, it's make or break time right now. Here's how McCarthy put it today on the Hill ahead of the meeting. Decisions have to start being made. Uh, I mean, you're 10 days out, so the president has to be serious. 
And Ari, you know this, having covered these types of negotiations a lot, you still have to leave time for House members to review the deal and clear it through the Senate. Biden continues, though, to project optimism that there will not be a default, but they're still pretty far off on these spending cuts. He's projecting optimism and also saying he would consider invoking the 14th Amendment to keep making payments on the government's debt. Is that becoming more likely as the deadline draws closer? Well, it's really something that progressives in his party have urged. They'd rather he do that than accept cuts to programs that they see as priorities. The president has said he believes he has the power, the constitutional power, to raise the limit on his own. But he doesn't think there's enough time to go through the inevitable legal challenges and avoid a default. Now, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen also has cast some doubt on the idea, noting the legal uncertainty. Today, though, she notified Congress that based on the department's latest information, it's, quote, highly likely, highly likely that the money will run out in early June and as early as June 1st. There are obviously huge economic implications for that that could touch many Americans, and we've reported on those. But I want to ask you about the politics of this. Who has more to lose if the government defaults? I mean, everyone has a lot to lose. It's clear, though, that both Biden and McCarthy are trying to avoid any kind of blame. McCarthy needs to keep the right flank of his party happy or he could lose his speakership. But so far, he's surprised many by keeping his conference united, including passing a plan that ties raising the debt limit to spending cuts. But there is growing anxiety from Wall Street about this is how this is impacting the economy. Biden argues that it's Congress's responsibility to raise the debt limit. That said, Biden's the president, and whether he likes it or not, it's his economy. And he's running for re-election in 2024, and a lot of his success is going to be determined on how well the economy is doing. NPR's Franco Ordonez at the White House. Thank you. Thank you. Let's head to Florida now, a state for which the NAACP has just issued a travel advisory. It cites Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's, quote, aggressive attempts to erase black history. And it continues, Florida is openly hostile toward African-Americans, people of color, and LGBTQ plus individuals. Well, the NAACP is the third civil rights group in recent days to issue travel notices for Florida. And this, of course, comes as DeSantis is gearing up to announce his bid for the GOP presidential nomination, perhaps as soon as this week. Well, let's bring in Mutaki Akbar. He's president of the NAACP branch in Tallahassee, Florida's capital. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. In a few sentences, tell me what prompted this, like specifically which laws? Well, specifically, it was the taking away of the AP Black History course back in March that started the conversation with the Florida State Conference. Mm -hmm. um, And that led to a recommendation to the board of directors nationally to issue this travel advisory. And then I saw that just last week, Governor DeSantis signed legislation to defund diversity programs, DEI programs at public universities and colleges in Florida. Was that a factor? Yes, that was a factor as well. So it's been these culture wars for the last few legislative sessions, which made it an easy process for the board of directors. Now, I want to be careful about language here. And I Mm -hmm. said this is a travel advisory. It's not a warning. You're not telling people to avoid travel to Florida. Why not? 
Well, they're black businesses. We don't want it to negatively affect those people in Florida who have nothing to do with what the governor and the legislator is doing. You said you don't want to hurt businesses, but Florida is a huge tourist destination. What economic impact are you expecting this to have? It could, but I think... If it does make an economic impact, then maybe that'll draw enough attention for those elected officials to kind of pull back. We reached out today to the governor's office for comment, and his press secretary, Jeremy Redfern, sent us this, quote, Florida is seeing record-breaking tourism. This is nothing more than a stunt. Mr. Mm -hmm. Akbar, is this a stunt? It's not a stunt. I mean, it's a way to draw attention to what has been going on in this state and also to draw attention to the person who has been leading this, which is Governor DeSantis. So we're hoping that this will be a national effort to like kind of point to what he's been doing so it doesn't spread throughout this country, which would be disastrous. I do need to ask about timing. DeSantis is expected to throw his hat in the ring this week for the Republican nomination. Yes. Did that play a role here? No. This was recommended back in March by the Florida State Conference, and it just so happened that the next meeting for the Board of Directors was this past weekend. And as a matter of fact, we would was hoping that it would have come a lot sooner than this week. Yeah. Just to step us back for a moment, the laws and policies that you object to that have prompted this travel advisory, can you speak for a moment to the impact of those? How are they playing out for Floridians so far? Well, some of them have just started. Others are a huge concern. I mean, if you look at even the quote-unquote Stop Woke Act that deals with education and, and what can be taught in schools. and yeah, so it restricts some race-based conversations in schools. Go on. Exactly. So now you have teachers, you have administrators that are in real fear as far as what they can even teach. One other law that we've looked at that kind of triggered our concern is HB1 last year, but it dealt with protesting. That had an effect on how people would protest and, and respond to, you know, police brutality and those things. And those are the things that we are speaking out against with this travel advisory. And what kind of reaction are you hearing so far to this advisory? So far, it's been positive. I mean, and that's just talking to people locally. But I, I think, you know, what the NAACP will do is getting people out to the polls, registering people to vote, educating the community on what's going on and why it's going on so we can see real change. Mr. Akbar, thank you. Thank you for having me. That is Mutaki Akbar, president of the Tallahassee, Florida branch of the NAACP. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This year, Lake Powell is going to get a big boost from melting snow. The nation's second largest reservoir on the Colorado River needs the water. Earlier this year, it was at a record low. So before the spring rise, KUNC's Alex Hager met up with a crew of adventurers to document the historic moment. When it comes to Lake Powell lately, it's like the old saying goes, the only constant is change. I call this the moon zone because it's kind of like going to the moon every time. 
Jack Staus with the Glen Canyon Institute invited this group to come see Lake Powell at the lowest it's been since 1968. He's leading a hike through a narrow canyon with towering red rock walls. There are ecosystems that thrive in these side canyons even when they've been dewatered for just like four years. You start to see stuff come back on a really unprecedented scale. In the 1960s, engineers flooded Glen Canyon to store water from the Colorado River. Now, less than a quarter full, it's a harrowing visual reminder that we built a system for watering the West, and that system is on the ropes. But at the same time, when the water draws back, people like Staus are celebrating what gets revealed. And you can see that change in real time. Every time you come down here, it's sort of a different game of steering the boat through stuff. Kind of exciting, actually. Like a little puzzle. Staus is piloting our boat around the blackened tips of cottonwood trees, just poking out from underwater. Len Nessifer, founder of the advocacy group Natives Outdoors and a member of the Navajo Nation, is another member of our expedition. He's looking at the messy, muddy delta, where the Escalante River meets the reservoir. It's constantly changing. I think that's the, you know, in, in a few weeks you'll be able to motor around and go up to, you know, Willow Canyon and all that. But right now it's, yeah, in this like sort of crazy zone of transition. As we start to turn the boat away from shallow ground, Nesifer says it's a great reminder. As much as humans try to control the natural world around them, even on a huge scale, nature bats last. Bottom of the ninth and, you know, end, end of a baseball game, nature is at bat and basically has the final say what happens. Later, a short hike along a muddy creek takes us through a few patches of quicksand before we ultimately arrive at Cathedral in the Desert. Teal Leto is on the trek, too. She goes by the name Western Water Girl on TikTok, where she makes short videos about the Colorado River. Honestly, I'm kind of speechless, which is really funny for me because I always have something to say. But it is gorgeous. It's amazing to me to imagine that this was all underwater, and it will be underwater again soon. We're staring up at Cathedral's cavernous, rounded walls. It's a breathtaking pocket of space in the rock where the sounds of a trickling waterfall echo through the canyon. I kind of wish there was a choir here, because I think it would be really beautiful. Does anybody know how to sing? This waterfall used to look a lot different. Again, Jack Staus. People used to just boat right up, like, you know, 100 feet above the waterfall. Staus and other environmentalists say Lake Powell should be drained, water should be stored elsewhere, and the full majesty of Glen Canyon should be allowed to return. But I don't think we should just think that the uh, drawdown of these reservoirs is over. I think we should use the moment to rethink completely how we store, use, and conserve water across the West, and I think Glen Canyon should be at the heart of that conversation. Glen Canyon and those who fight for its future will have to wait a little longer. This spring will bring water back to the side canyons and more uncertainty about what will happen next. For NPR News, I'm Alex Hager in Bullfrog, Utah. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Coming up on All Things Considered, the deal to conserve more water on the Colorado River. And just ahead, we review Kisha's new album, Gag Order. And this reminder, at 6.30, we'll have a Marketplace special episode focused on efforts to deal with the U.S. debt ceiling and some of the consequences if lawmakers don't resolve that. The time is 5.49.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. In our forecast, clear skies tonight, temperatures in the 40s. Tomorrow should be sunny with highs in the 60s. Wednesday, mostly sunny, although we do have a chance of showers late in the day Wednesday, possibly Wednesday evening. Temperatures Wednesday in the low 70s. Thursday and Friday, sunshine, highs both days in the 60s. It's 55 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University Academy, where kind and curious high school students who love to learn thrive. Virtual info session May 25th, buacademy.org. How can teachers respond to fights in school, weapons smuggled into buildings, chaos in classrooms? I fear every day, you know, I really fear. The debate over tactics from expulsions to calling the police. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Kesha's back. Her new album is called Gag Order. And listening to it, you can't help but think about all she's been through in the last 10 years. There's a fine line between what's entertaining and what's just exploiting the pain. But hey, look at all the money we made off me. Since 2014, Kesha's been locked in a legal battle with a music producer known as Dr. Luke. She alleges he has drugged and raped and emotionally abused her, among other claims. He's countersued for defamation and breach of contract, the contract under which she has now released Gag Order. It's her fifth record for Dr. Luke's label. It is a twisted tale, to say the least, and the tension is all over this album. We're taking all this to the group chat. NPR Music's Stephen Thompson and Ann Powers, good to have you both here. Great to be here. Hey, Ari. And what's your first take? What strikes you most about this album? Well, you know, Ari, I really value artists who work to express the complexities of emotion in pop music, not only in their lyrics, but musically as well. I think the album is kind of a rocky listen, but in the best way. I mean, it takes us inside the head of this woman who's dealt with so much and who sometimes is still unsure of herself, but she's just determined to be honest. And honest is not a word I ever use lightly. And what does she show us when we get there inside her head? I mean, her last two albums in 2017 and 2020, they nodded to her situation with Dr. Luke, but less overtly. Oh, wow. All right. This is why I think this album is so important beyond Kesha's own body of work and her own career. I mean, we're years out now from the Me Too movement becoming mainstream. And as a public, we like to focus on stories of like triumph and, you know, stories that resolved in some way. But for victims, their stories rarely completely resolve. And Kesha is giving us a gift with this album. She's she's letting us hear the often contradictory emotions inside her head. I'm so sick of myself, you don't know. I don't want to be here all alone. I don't want to do this on my own. Get me out of my head. And reminding us that not only is healing a lifelong process, but justice is a lifelong process. Stephen, what stands out to you about the album? I think it's the mixture of beauty and messiness. And 
to hear this record that is so much darker and so much more conflicted and conveying so many more messy feelings, that's really powerful. And I think at the same time, it's got this production by Rick Rubin that is really beautiful. You can kind of get lost in the swirl of this record and, and you know, sometimes her voice then punches through that beauty and really catches you off guard. Like in the song, Eat the Acid, which is one of the singles from this record. You said don't never eat the acid if you don't wanna be changed like it changed me. You said all the edges got so jagged now everything you saw then can't be unseen. It kind of has this hypnotic build to it as it's going along. And she's kind of giving this cautionary tale, which is a reflection of a cautionary tale that she had received from her mother, basically saying like, don't take drugs, it's gonna change you the way it changed me. But then when you know her story, that cautionary tale is about more than what it seems to be. This journey has been a decade, as we said. Why do you think she's going there now? Well, I think the simple fact that these lawsuits have been going back and forth and, and, you know, they're not unidirectional. They are going back and forth. She's being sued for defamation. She is suing him for, for the reasons that you outlined in the intro. And I think that the cumulative effect of all that conflict, which is not only between her and Dr. Luke, but her and this label that is supposed to be the caretaker of her career, I think that frustration has built up and accumulated in a way that she can't just ignore it in the records that she's putting out. Stephen, that's such a great insight, and I think that's why this record is not just about Kesha's story, but about the story of pop artists in general. I mean, so many pop stars kind of reach this point where they've been put into a box and they they want to refuse the bonds, you know, that that contain them. And Miley Cyrus has done the same thing recently, but this record goes even farther than what Miley's done. Mm. Do you think we hear this album differently because of the reckoning with Britney Spears and going more broadly, the reckoning with so many female figures who were, I don't know, dismissed or written off from Pamela Anderson to Lorena Bobbitt, who are obviously different generations, but there's been this kind of broader reassessment, Janet Jackson and more. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the name that came to mind for me was Amber Heard, you know, mm-hmm. uh, a woman who just had to endure public humiliation simply to tell her story. And the, a lot of this, I mean, what do you think, Stephen? I think a lot of this record addresses that particular predicament of being a famous person and knowing that anytime you speak, there's going to be a chorus contradicting you, taking you down, and you have no escape in a sense. Yeah, I mean, and I know you're a fan of the song from this record, Hate Me Harder, that mm, yeah, that, that, is spe- that is speaking to that. And in some ways, it's a very simple, very common refrain that you hear in a lot of pop music, a lot of hip hop, a lot of R&B, like, like, come at me, haters. You say that I'm over, you say I'm a husband, you say I look older, nobody was asking, luckily the joke's on you, I got nothing left to prove. That's what this song is doing, but at the same time, it is clearly an artist reflecting on her own reputation and understanding that there are people now for whom anything she says can and will be used against her. Uh, not just you know in a court of law, but, but just in, in social media and in the conversation around her. And I, I think she's doing a nice job of taking that situation, which in many ways is... Her situation is specific to her, but she is taking it and making it kind of a larger, more universal song for anybody who feels beleaguered. Mm. I have a very specific response to that, which is, you know, I live in Tennessee Mm -hmm. and there are many people in this state 
who are feeling very endangered right now. And I consider Hate Me Harder an anthem for all of those folks who are facing legal challenges, political challenges, feeling they might have to move away from their home. You're talking about I mean, the anti-drag laws, the limitation I, on trans medical treatment and so on. Completely. And Hate Me Harder is an anthem for those folks. There's nothing left that I have heard And I can't take it to make it hurt I got to know Kesha as a kind of creator of danceable party hits that didn't have a lot of depth to them. Sorry. Is there any sign of that facet of her personality on this album? Well, I wanted to talk about Only Love Can Save Us Now. It's a banger, you know, and it does kind of refer back to the Kesha we loved who brushed her teeth with Jack Daniels, you know. It starts out, she compares herself to Evil Knievel. But it also contains that complexity we're talking about. You know, it, in some points it's kind of bitter, it's angry, but then it just returns to this redemptive chorus that's almost like a gospel chorus. It's it's such a wonderful jumble of emotions. And yes, it has jokes. Because you know what? Kesha's a great comic artist, too. Let's not forget, she's the queen of making hilarious jokes. And thank goodness she hasn't completely lost her sense of humor. That's our group chat, NPR Music's Stephen Thompson and Ann Powers talking about the new Kesha album, Gag Order. Thank you both. Thank you, Ari. Thank you, Ari. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the United States Postal Service, Reinventing its network with shipping options designed to keep businesses moving forward. USPS, delivering for America. USPS.com slash moving forward. From Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X. Capital One is proud to support NPR Music and the Tiny Desk Contest. Capital One, what's in your wallet? From Cunard, sailing the transatlantic crossing between New York and Southampton, England on Queen Mary II, with a commitment to White Star service, fine dining, and entertainment. QNAR.com slash crossing. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. Stay with us. Coming up, the story about a crew of four astronauts on a private Axiom space trip run by SpaceX has reached the International Space Station. Our forecast says clear skies tonight, lows in the 40s, sunny tomorrow, highs in the 60s. It's 54 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, and power a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Washington lawmakers try to strike a compromise to avert a potentially devastating federal default as soon as next week. Defaulting on the debt does not reduce our spending. It just means we stiff our creditors. It's Monday, May 22nd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. 
Good evening. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up, the challenges of implementing Internet age verification. Also, the deal to conserve more water from the Colorado River. And a look at some of the consequences if the U.S. does default on its debt. A special episode of Marketplace. We'll take a look at this at 6.30. It's 6.01. First, this hour's news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is turning up the heat on lawmakers to raise the federal debt ceiling. NPR Scott Horsley reports Yellen warns the government could run short of money in just 10 days. Yellen says unless Congress acts to authorize more borrowing, it's highly likely the government will run short of money to pay its bills in the first half of June and as early as June 1st. Yellen's new letter to lawmakers doesn't change the timetable for the so-called X date, but it adds more urgency as the date gets closer and the Treasury Department has more confidence in its financial forecast. The government has tens of billions of dollars in bills coming due in the first few days of June, including payments to Social Security recipients, Medicare providers, defense contractors, and veterans. Any of those payments could be delayed if government coffers run dry before the debt limit is increased. Scott Horsley, NPR News. Washington. Meanwhile, President Joe Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy are meeting today to again discuss the debt ceiling after on-again, off-again talks between negotiators over the weekend. There are more dire warnings about what failure to reach agreement might mean. Economists and others say a first-ever U.S. default would send the country crashing into recession or worse. McCarthy and Republican lawmakers are insisting on deep spending cuts in exchange for raising the borrowing limit. Eight more women are suing the state of Texas over that state's abortion bans. They say the restrictions put them in danger during pregnancy-related medical emergencies. NPR Sam McCammon explains they're asking a judge to clarify medical exceptions in the state's anti-abortion statutes. The eight additional women have signed on to a lawsuit first filed in March on behalf of five Texas women and two doctors. During a press conference, Jessica Bernardo described traveling out of state for an abortion after doctors told her that her life could be in danger if she continued a complicated pregnancy last year. I'm speaking up now and joining this case because I never want another human being to go through what I and other Texans have been through. This has to be stopped. The Center for Reproductive Rights, which is representing the women, is now asking for an injunction blocking the Texas abortion bans for patients with medically complicated pregnancies. Sarah McCammon, NPR News, Washington. The slow and in some cases only partial return to full-time in-office work, something that may be a permanent shift for many firms, starting to hit some of the biggest office landlords hard. A report by the Wall Street Journal shows share prices for those companies falling in some cases near historic lows. One company, SL Green, has seen its share price fall to barely above its 1997 IPO price. Ornato Realty Trust, which owns big buildings in San Francisco, Chicago, and New York, has also seen its stock price fall. A mixed close on Wall Street today. The Dow fell 140 points. The Nasdaq rose 62 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening. I'm Deborah Becker. The Boston Marathon community is mourning the death of a man who, along with his dad, embodied the spirit of the historic race for more than 30 years. Alex Ashlock reports. Rick Hoyt was a Boston Marathon fixture, pushed in his wheelchair by his father Dick, starting in 1981. Rick, who had cerebral palsy, died today. 
His dad died a couple of years ago. Together, they were known as Team Hoyt. In a 2014 WBUR story, Rick used his computerized voice to express his love for the Boston Marathon. The people along the way are the best. When I hear them yell our names out, it gives me a great feeling inside. Rick Hoyt was 61. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Alex Ashlock. A former Watertown police detective will receive even more from her gender discrimination suit against the city than a jury has awarded. A Middlesex Superior Court judge rejected Watertown's request for a new trial in the case of former detective Kathleen Donahue. Her lawsuit alleged that as Watertown's first female detective, she faced a sexist workplace and was targeted after she complained about it. The Boston Globe says Judge John Pappas awarded Donahue new legal Legal fees and reimbursements boosting her total judgment from 4.3 to 5.7 million dollars. Three former students at Arlington Catholic High School are suing Boston Archbishop Sean O'Malley and two of his top lieutenants. They argue that Catholic Church officials should have known about the alleged abuse that took place at the school between 2011 and 2016. WBUR's Simone Rios reports. Attorney Mitchell Garabedian brought the civil suit on behalf of the three former students. Garabedian told reporters the public needs to know what the archdiocese knew about allegations at the school. It's time for Bishop O'Malley to reveal what he has substantively in those secret files concerning the sexual abuse of three innocent children. The archdiocese says the allegations against the principal were reported to authorities and the principal was removed from the school. Garabedian says officials are investigating the claims. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. Some Massachusetts addiction treatment providers say they need higher reimbursements from the state's Medicaid program, MassHealth, or they might have to cut some treatment beds. At a hearing on proposed rate changes today, the head of the association that represents behavioral health care providers said MassHealth reimburses at rates about 50 percent lower than what commercial insurers pay. The Cape Cod-based addiction treatment provider Gosnold said his facility might have to cut some services to continue treating patients who are MassHealth members. In sports, Red Sox play the Angels in Anaheim tonight, and our forecast says clear tonight with lows in the 20s. Sunny tomorrow, highs in the 60s. Wednesday, mostly sunny. Temperatures getting into the 70s, maybe showers. Wednesday night, 54 degrees right now in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at Carnegie.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Peggy Whitson has spent well over a year of her life in space. At the age of 63, she is back at it. We'll hear in a few minutes about her trip underway now to the International Space Station. First, to a deal that impacts drinking water, electricity, and food sources for tens of millions of Americans. Today, the White House announced a major conservation deal on the Colorado River. Reservoirs are critically low after decades of overuse and drought brought on by climate change. And states that share the river have been negotiating for months, trying to come up with their own agreement so the federal government doesn't mandate water cuts for them. NPR's Kirk Ziegler is covering the deal. Hey, Kirk. Hello, Ari. Uh, After months, there appears to be a breakthrough. What's in the deal? 
Exactly. So this involves three states in the lower basin, Arizona, Nevada, and California. They're voluntarily agreeing to a plan to use three million acre feet less of water over the next three years. So what's three million acre feet? Uh, for context, that's about a third of the traditional flow of the entire Colorado River. It's a lot, but not as much as they'll eventually need to cut. But, you know, at least for now, it's going to hopefully keep the river's reservoirs from falling below a level that would endanger the water and hydropower supply you know, for major cities here in the West, not to mention huge pieces of highly productive farmland that, of course, are critical to the food we eat. I mean, Ari, this is an extraordinary time. I mean, Lake Mead is dangerously close to what's known as dead pool. That's the level where no water would flow below the Hoover Dam to these states. Sounds like this deal is only possible because the White House is offering more than a billion dollars to make it happen, though? <laughs> Right, yeah, this is a key point. Uh, in order to get these cuts, the Biden administration is doing things like paying farmers to fallow their fields. Uh, the government is also compensating irrigation districts, Southwest Indian tribes to voluntarily keep some of their legally entitled water in Lake Mead, uh, you know, in order to keep the nation's largest reservoir from literally going dry. Uh, this money is largely from the recent infrastructure and inflation reduction laws, so it's just temporary. Um, and there's just, you know, there's another big thing that's making this deal possible, Ari. The West, we had an unusually snowy winter, and almost all of our water here comes from snow-fed reservoirs. I talked to Catherine Sorensen about this deal today. She's the former manager of Phoenix Water and is now at Arizona State University's Kyle Center for Water Policy. The good snowpack kind of bought us the luxury of bringing forward a deal that wasn't quite as much as the federal government was hoping for, but it does buy us time. The question is how much time? As significant as this deal is, is it just a temporary fix? Well, it is significant. You know, we can't discount that. It's some of the largest reductions of water use in modern times, but it's only going to run through 2026. It's temporary. And that roughly $1.2 billion in federal relief is uh, federal relief is one time only. Um, these conservation commitments are voluntary, but Catherine Sorensen there at ASU says this is key, actually, because it will likely avert what many had feared across the river basin, that the federal government was going to come in as soon as this summer and start enforcing mandatory cuts across the basin unilaterally, you know, not even accounting for users who actually have done a lot to conserve water already. And that's important because the minute the federal government does that, someone's going to sue. So is the fight going to be even bigger a few years from now in 2026? I'd say it's highly likely. I mean, even if you didn't factor in climate change and the 23-year mega drought here in the West, this river is already way overpromised to so many users of its water. I mean, this has been a problem even when the river law was written 100 years ago, back when they didn't have 40 million people living here in some of the biggest cities in the nation, like Los Angeles and Phoenix. But I have to say, as I've been reporting, and it's taken me across the Southwest in the last few months, I've really noticed a growing kind of acceptance that the current rules just aren't working, the current law of the river. And everyone knows that saving this river is going to take a lot more. A lot bigger water restrictions could be coming for farms and cities across the southwest. But now that the deal has been reached, what are the immediate next steps? Well, this deal is going to, for now, immediately halt an emergency environmental plan that the government had been about to implement in the coming days. And presumably, this is going to give the states more time to continue these even longer-term negotiations. You know, it's interesting, California had for months been a holdout, refusing to agree to a conservation plan that the six other states in the basin had agreed to. So they appear to, at least for now, already be at the table. NPR's Kirk Sigler, thanks a lot. You're welcome.
The debt ceiling debate can feel a little bit like Groundhog Day. Same drama, different year. Of course, it is possible this time is different. Congress may actually fail to reach a deal in time. So what exactly happens to the economy and to the lives of everyday Americans if the U.S. defaults on its debt? NPR's Stacey Vanek-Smith takes a look. Sometimes it feels a little like the U.S. is the country that cried debt ceiling. But this year, there seems to be real worry the country might slam into that spending limit and actually run out of money, not be able to pay the bills. The dreaded default. And that sounds bad. But is it really so bad? What exactly happens if the U.S. defaults anyway? I put this question to Daryl Duffy, professor of finance at Stanford's Business School. So it would be a disaster, and the reputation of the government for meeting its debt obligations would, would be in tatters. And Duffy says that reputation is worth money, a lot of money, actually. The U.S.'s reputation for always paying its debts has allowed it to borrow trillions of dollars at very low rates, $31 trillion to be exact. If we default, the interest rate on that debt would go up because the U.S. would be seen as a risky borrower, just like your credit card interest rate would go up if you started missing payments. A higher interest rate would mean that huge U.S. debt would immediately start getting hugely huger, really fast. But some debt ceiling diehards say, okay, so we default, our debt gets bigger, our reputation gets a black eye. Maybe that would be the kick in the duff Congress needs to actually get spending under control, negotiate like adults. And that's a totally reasonable view. Justin Wolfers teaches economics and public policy at the University of Michigan. Just like your family has to live within a budget, you might say you want Congress to live within a budget. But Defaulting on the debt does not reduce our spending. It just means we stiff our creditors. So we default, that will teach them. That infuses who gets hurt. Wolfer says if the U.S. defaults and there's no more money to spend, the government suddenly wouldn't have cash to run basic operations, like roads and schools. Right away, government workers might stop getting paid. Businesses that have contracts with the government might not get paid, and that could mean a lot of layoffs. Social security checks could stop going out. Also, Wolfer says it would shock financial markets, might even cause a panic. After all, banks have loaned the U.S. government billions of dollars. They hold a lot of the debt that suddenly no one is sure will be paid. People could start to worry whether banks are on solid ground. And that's when the financial system freezes up. That means there's no more borrowing. Businesses stop investing. The markets go absolutely haywire. And so that's the sense in which all of this could very quickly looks in many respects like the financial crisis of 2008. Well, the only thing that's different is it's a self-inflicted shock. In short, the U.S. economic engine could start to seize up, putting different parts of our economy at risk all at once, says Stanford's Daryl Duffy. Operations would start to break down. A recession could follow. It's the most critical part of U.S. national economic security that the government can fund itself. Now, Duffy points out countries default on their debt all the time, and they do keep going. But the U.S. is not just any country. It's the biggest, wealthiest economy on the planet. Countries all over the world own billions of dollars worth of U.S. debt. An economic shock in the U.S. would spread all over the world. In recent decades, some larger economies have defaulted, including Greece, Iceland, Argentina, they did all bounce back to some extent, but economist Justin Wolfer says in each of those cases, it was a long, painful journey. Each of those countries went through 
recessions that are arguably close to depressions. So I'd say let's not join that group. That's my um, insightful economic advice. And it's estimated Congress might have less than a week to follow that advice. Stacey Vanek-Smith, NPR News. Sometimes it's hard for trailblazers to stay retired. Ask Tom Brady or Michael Jordan or Peggy Whitson. Hey, gang, this is Dragon Freedom up here with a new crew on board at Orbit. At the age of 63, Whitson is commander of the AX2 mission for the private company Axiom Space. It launched yesterday afternoon using a SpaceX rocket and capsule. It's now docked at the International Space Station. I'm really excited about returning to space, but even more excited about welcoming three new astronauts to space. Those three others include an American businessman and two Saudi astronauts. It's their first time in space. For Peggy Whitson, it's her fourth trip. She's done 10 spacewalks. She is known as Space Ninja. In 2017, she broke the American record for the most cumulative days in space, a total of 665. She spoke to NPR's Weekend Edition that year after landing back on this planet. Well, gravity always sucks. Yeah, Earth is a big change after being in orbit for the better part of a year. Part of the adaptation when you get back, though, is all those little muscles, you know, in your knees and your ankles that help you with balance. They haven't had to work for, in my case, nine and a half months. And so we do lots of specific reconditioning exercises that try and make them remember how to work. Whitson was the first female commander of the ISS. When she returned in 2017, she said it was unlikely she would go back, but she admitted she would miss it. Anyone that's ever gone to space is always wanting to go back. (laughs) You get addicted to it. She did retire from NASA in 2018, but one more opportunity came in from the private sector. Among the research projects that this Axiom space crew expects to work on is one involving cancer cells. We are looking at how cancer cells are forming and and working in space, and this is going to help the scientists learn even more about how that development occurs because in zero gravity, they form more like they do in your body. And so it's a it's a really good model for them to use. In a press conference before launch, Whitson said she'd be traveling with the necklace she wore on her wedding day, as she did on three other space flights. She and her crew are expected to stay at the ISS for eight days and return to Earth at the end of the month. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, after lawmakers in Utah ban gender-affirming surgeries for trans youth, that state's largest health care system abandoned plans to offer the surgeries to adults, too. It's 19 minutes past 6. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Volante Farms in Needham, now harvesting fresh, homegrown asparagus, radishes, and herbs. Visit volantefarms.com to learn more. On Wall Street, the Dow dropped 140 points today as talks continue over the debt ceiling. The Nasdaq was down almost 63 points. In local business news, Massachusetts tax collections are up so far this month. State Department of Revenue officials say they collected more than $1.3 billion in the first half of May, and that's about 12 percent higher than the same period last year. Marketplace will have all the business news and that special episode on efforts to avoid a U.S. government default beginning at 6.30. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University Academy, where kind and curious high school students pursue their passions as far as they can take them. Virtual info session May 25th, online at buacademy.org backslash events. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. In our forecast, clear skies tonight, temperatures in the 40s. Sunny tomorrow, highs in the 60s. For Wednesday, mostly sunny. Temperatures getting into the 70s, but we do have a chance of showers later in the day Wednesday or Wednesday night. It's 53 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the 2023 Boston Early Music Festival, featuring Grammy Award-winning opera, concerts, and more, June 4th to 11th in Boston, BEMF.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. How can a website tell for certain that a visitor is over 18 or 21? In several states, lawmakers have told tech companies, figure it out. The goal is to restrict kids' access to social networks and porn sites. Right now, it's easy to lie and get around age limits. The catch is, stricter verification systems raise privacy concerns. Emma Roth of The Verge has been writing about the wave of new laws and the effort to balance child safety with privacy. She's here for our All Tech Considered segment. Welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. Lots of websites make you check a box that says, yes, I'm old enough to continue. But some states have already changed this policy, right? What's going on? Right. So in three states right now, Utah, Arkansas, and Louisiana, there are already age verification tools in place for people to access social media sites or porn sites. In Louisiana and Utah, they have laws that aim to block users under the age of 18 from viewing porn. And in Arkansas, they require social media companies to implement age verification that blocks users under 18. So this is already in place in Louisiana. What does it look like there? Yeah, so they are using something called All Pass Trust. What this system is, is that you kind of upload a government ID to it, and the website will then check that and see if you're of age. And you'll either be let into the site or not, depending on how old you are. What other age verification options are on the table right now? So far, people have come up with ways maybe to use a credit card or a government ID to verify your age. However, this might exclude some adults, especially those with lower incomes, as they might not have access to a credit card or a government-issued ID. There's also something called face-based age detection, and this uses facial analysis to estimate the ages of users, so this will require access to a device's camera. Another possibility is an inferential age verification system that essentially guesses your age based on your browsing history or your activity on a platform. How accurate is that? Well, that's the thing. It's going to be more difficult to kind of assess someone's age based on that information, and it could result in false positives that somebody is under 18, or it could even imply that someone's over the age of 18 when they're not. Are there also privacy implications for that? There is. I mean, anything that involves giving away your government ID or a credit card, it always poses the risk of that information being hacked or leaked. These are two important competing values, privacy concerns and child safety. Is there any consensus, even an emerging sense, of how to balance these two things? Right now, there honestly isn't. When it comes to privacy advocates and civil liberties lawyers, 
they both are in agreement that there's kind of no sound way to implement age verification at this time. And a lot of lawmakers are kind of rushing into this, but we really don't have a sense of what we can do yet to safely implement these methods. Do you think this marks a larger shift in the way policymakers are thinking about access to the internet and who can go where with what rules? With this, with the introduction of these age verification methods, there's a chance that the internet could become more closed than ever. And the internet may never be the same with these methods put in place. That's Emma Roth, reporter at The Verge. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Support for All Tech Considered comes from Capital One, offering their premium travel card, VentureX. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. And from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at BetterHelp.com public. Utah's largest healthcare provider looked like it was on the path to expanding gender-affirming surgery options for adults. But in January, the state passed a law banning gender-affirming care for minors, and now the hospital system says it will not offer those additional adult services. Sage Miller at member station KUER reports. Amber Chevrier knew something wasn't right with her body since puberty. But she didn't learn the words to describe how she felt until her mid-20s when she met a trans woman. Everything that she described as being her before she came out was how I was feeling all of the time. Chevrier made the decision to surgically transition. She chose to use Intermountain Health because it was in her insurance network. Chevrier had her first consultation last October for what's known as bottom surgery, or procedures to modify genitalia as part of gender-affirming care. But months into preparing for that, she received a call in late February from a social worker with Intermountain's LGBTQ health program. Who informed me that Intermountain was changing policies. And when they did that, uh, the the policy change was that they were no longer allowing bottom surgeries for um, trans patients, for patients specifically diagnosed with gender dysphoria. Chevrier, who is 33 years old, says she was about six months away from getting a surgery date. I wasn't expecting that type of news. Uh, My mind kind of went blank for the rest of the conversation because it just was crushing. She wasn't expecting the news because when Utah passed a new law banning gender-affirming surgeries in January, it was only for trans youth. It's still legal for adults in the state to get bottom surgery. Intermountain says it has never performed bottom surgeries for gender care, but Chevrier says the health system was preparing her to get it. Sue Robbins, a trans advocate with the group Equality Utah, says it looks like Intermountain changed its policies right after the law passed banning gender-affirming care for minors, SB 16. They had been scheduling uh, preliminary appointments or pre-op appointments to start working with who would be their first patients, and then they started canceling those um, after SB 16. Intermountain isn't talking to reporters about the cancellations, which suggest a change in policy. But in a memo sent to staff, it said no single event prompted the decision to continue offering the same services in the future that we have been providing in the past. Intermountain recently hired a doctor with experience in doing those procedures. That doctor declined to be interviewed for this story. Sue Robbins is suspicious. It's really tough on the community because uh, we feel like we had made a lot of advances. So this feels like a big blowback. 
And when you feel like your rights are being taken away and you know it's misinformation, it can be hard. For Chevrier, it'll take time for her to feel supported going through the surgery process again. But it won't stop her. It's important because it's who I am. Um, I was born and raised being told that I was a boy. I am not. I'm a woman. And I deserve to have the care that allows me to express that. But she isn't confident her surgery will ever take place at an Intermountain facility. For NPR News, I'm Sage Miller in Salt Lake City. Tomorrow on All Things Considered, we'll talk with a journalist who is leaving the newsroom for the classroom. After getting a close look at teaching life through a reporting assignment, he decided to switch careers. To hear that story, turn on your radio or ask your smart speaker to play your local station. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BG Catering Concepts, corporate and social event planning and catering for special occasions. BGCateringConcepts.com. And Babson College. The Babson MBA helps you become a professional who takes action, leads with confidence, and tackles complex global challenges. Acquire the highly sought-after entrepreneurial mindset with a Babson MBA, ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Visit babson.edu slash MBA.